Hello and welcome to the Motion E podcast. I'm S. Garlic and um, I have another returning guest to the podcast this time. It is Ida Woods. She is a writer for Formula Scout and also several other publications. And uh, the last time I had you on, Ida, it was thanks to my myopic obsession with Dan Tictum and the fact that you had written, I think, three of the best interviews uh, with with Dan uh, that, uh, that, had, that had been in the press at that time. And I think still the case now, but um, this time it's not just because of that, although we, we will, of course, touch on the Tictum. Um, I also want to talk to you about uh, the Cape Town E-Pre, and I want to talk to you as well about some of the candidates coming through in the junior formulae that might find their way into Formula E. But how are you doing, Ida? I'm doing well. um, I enjoyed last weekend's race action. Really, really enjoyed it. So good, and getting ready for all of the uh, non-electric stuff to get going again as well. So it's a very busy with lots of motorsport. Fantastic, and um, let's let's start by talking about the Cape Town E Prix. It was the it was the first E Prix in South Africa. Um, sadly, the late lamented Marrakesh E Prix is no more because uh, we because we have this E Prix. But still fantastic venue and uh, what an excellent race as well um di- when you looked at the track layout and when you looked at how fast it was were you surprised by the level of racing that we saw on saturday yeah i think so um particularly of how clean the racing was most of the time because when you have tracks at a high speed but also next to quite literally a beach i think like one of the corners or one of the straights called beach road um you normally expect a lot of dust and because of like the wind speeds as well for the track surface to be not like torn up because it's going to be quite old for that but to still be impacted by that weather but it seemed quite grippy it was obviously very fast uh the drivers even though they had very disrupted uh, practice and qualifying time still did a great job in being able to go wheel to wheel with each other so i think all things considered a huge success for formula e and obviously helped by that race winning move which probably has made this track the favorite for many many fans Absolutely. And I th- I think that uh, the, the fact that it was on that central European um, friendly time zone as well made it made it made a big difference. So many of Formula E's breakthrough races in recent seasons have been for obvious reasons, for marketing reasons, um, either um, in in the in in the east or in the west as we see it from our perspective but uh, this this one was in a really plum slot, I think, for European viewers, which maybe makes us look back on it more fondly, I think. Yeah, and, and a key thing for this one as well, although it was the same with the previous round, was it did actually get on terrestrial television in the UK. Uh, we've had several events where it's just been shown on YouTube, but this one got a, I wouldn't say a primetime slot, but it, you know, it was on Channel 4, so as soon as you turn it on your TV and you, you, put, you, know, you press the guide button, you're going to see Formula E on there if, if you were turning it on, on on Saturday afternoon. So I think that really helped the championship with obviously the time zone. And also because... Um, of the weather in the uk is not great but um seeing such a sunny race at you know in the middle of the day it just had a really good vibe even before the racing began just seeing it on screen yeah um the uh, whole thing of wh- whether it's on terrestrial tv in the uk or not obviously given that most of my guests on this podcast are from the uk um it, it seems to be a major hot bu- hot button topic do do you think that actually Channel 4's treatment of the sport up until Cape Town has hurt the sport as much as we think it has? Or is it just a case of us being UK-centric? That's a tricky one. Um, 
when I've been actually watching the races, I've often been, because I've watching them on YouTube, noticing how many people are watching it and kind of live tweeting going, oh, look, we've just hit 10K viewers for a particularly boring moment in the race to kind of highlight that what's happening on track doesn't necessarily relate to how many people are watching it. Um, but also I've been following like loads of other winter series and they've been pulling in bigger numbers on YouTube. And I think that's because like the primary audience is an online audience. It's that niche that you're only ever going to watch it there because Formula E is larger than that. And it does have TV audiences in all these other countries. It is getting more viewers there. We just can't tell what those numbers are. Um, we can only really see what the YouTube numbers are. And therefore it looks like it's doing really badly in the UK because UK viewers can only watch it for YouTube sometimes. So whether that's the responsibility of Channel 4 schedulers or the responsibility of Formula E, I'm not entirely sure, but I think it hasn't necessarily hurted the championship because I think almost the series has done that itself in some ways. <laughs> but when it does end up on TV, you do see the benefits. Um, so it's a win-win situation when they're on TV, but when they're not on TV, they can still, you know, if you're not on a television channel, you have less um, scheduling, like, conflicts you don't have to cram into a two-hour window they can keep those broadcasts going on for longer and if you're a Formula E fan and you want more post-race analysis in that broadcast it's more beneficial to have it on YouTube so um, I think it's an interesting um, question and position and one thing I did notice actually during the Cape Town race when they're on the grid they bumped into the South American crew who I actually know quite well hmm. um, and they don't travel to all of the events for um like punditry often they obviously they have commentators but not all of the punditry takes place on track so to see them in cape town i was immediately like encouraged that the fact that formula e's obviously got several different languages they're broadcasting in and they're giving as much depth of coverage that we get in the english language broadcast as in um spanish language one yeah um you mentioned the you mentioned the dust on the circuit but uh, actually what's what stood out to me as I was watching particularly JQ's on board but because they they followed him for an entire lap during practice was j just how difficult that Gen 3 is to drive in general. Uh, we'll get on to one of the specific uh, outcomes of that at the Cape Town EP in a second but um did, did you no did you notice that as well and what were your thoughts on it the fact that um, it, it just seemed like the car was pure understeer through every corner. I, I'm still trying to trying to sort of calculate how much of that is down to the new Hankook tyres that are you know doing a great effort for sustainability, but aren't aren't really race tyres, and how much of it is down to the relatively untested nature of the Gen Three chassis. Because you know Jake Hughes is a person you know very well. He's a, he's a very handy driver, and I think even the most experienced FE drivers were having real trouble handling it round that circuit, and it's not the first time we've seen that. Yeah, um, I, I think the best comparison is to Albert Park or Melbourne, um, because that's also a really, really high speed track, but it's also a bumpy track, which essentially means, you know, the contact time of all four wheels on the track is far lower than it looks. If you're watching from um, outside the car, like totally from the grandstands, you're not going to be able to tell that the car is bouncing around so much between, you know, maybe the front left wheels briefly off the ground or the right rear. But when you're watching it on board, you can see that um, clearly you haven't got four points of contact with all four wheels at all times. And if you don't have that, you then don't have the grip and therefore you can't turn into corners as confidently. Um, and sometimes, you know, coming off the throttle might help with that. And, you know, lift and coasting is a key part of Formula E anyway. So that's a more sustainable way to drive the car in a race but in qualifying if you do want to push the car even if you've got downforce which this car does have a bit more of now um and even if the hand tires although they are harder still have grit until you have all four wheels 
you know, firmly on the ground, you're not going to have that grip. And as we saw, I think, turn seven and turn eight, in addition to being um, downhill, they're also slightly off camber or the camber changes slightly in the middle of the corner. So as you're getting to the turning point, you're then definitely not going to have four wheels on the ground, even for just like a minuscule of a minuscule of a second. But when you're traveling at those speeds, that's what makes a difference. Um, and that then means, you know, you're braking heavier if the car's not in control when you get down to um, turn nine. Um, and it essentially builds up lap after lap. If you're having to do that each time, you're then degrading the tires faster. If the tires are degrading faster, you then got less grip, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So really challenging track um, because of that. And these aren't things you can't really these are characteristics of circuits you can't remove, even with resurfacing sometimes if they're street circuits, because, you know, they're going to be used by cars and buses, et cetera, every day. Um, as we see with Albert Park, it's, it's always bumpy, even when they resurface it. I, I actually thought that the look of the Gen 3 cars would, would be the thing that uh, we were all remarking negatively, negatively on. But actually... Um maybe a little bit uh, similar to how every time someone brings out brings out an ugly new car about one or two years later everyone accepts it i, I think um in in this case the gen 3 car looked ugly at launch but i've got used to it and i think it looks pretty good on track now and um, it seems to certainly provide more of an opportunity for passing thanks to its uh, smaller size but uh, what what does bother me is that is the handling. I I wonder if maybe an Evo version could eventually sort this, or if maybe there's something they can do before then. Because obviously, you know, we we can't have a situation where it continues to to look this bad on camera in terms of handling for the next uh, year and a half. Yeah, that that is true. But but I also think that. Um when we saw at Cape Town, like drivers really hustling it and really enjoying it. And then when they get out of the car, they talk about how much they're enjoying it as well. Then that's a good look for the series, even if, um, and I think for people who drive their own cars are going to see the, the uncomfortableness of the handling when they're watching it. People who watch a lot of motorsport are going to be able to tell the difference between a well handling and ill handling car. But maybe for, for younger viewers, for, for Gen Z, which is essentially what, you know, a lot of series are trying to, tracks now in terms of interesting viewership are they really going to be concerned about an ill handling car they just want to see action and chaos and stuff and it did lead to action in the end so um maybe for the drivers it's not something they like and, and for like motorsport pros but i don't think it's like a be or an end all for the success of gen 3 even if we're gonna have to look at this for uh until like the evo version of the gen 3 car comes out well uh sam smith of the race who uh it, um has gained a reputation among some of his commenters for being a sort of Formula E Cassandra. Um, but he, he did say that uh, he'd spoken to uh, several of the drivers uh, who'd said that they wanted to tell him anonymously that, uh, um, in, in the words of one, uh, it, it it's, it's the worst racing experience of their career. Um, so while some drivers are quite willing to come on camera and say it's a it, it's it's a it's a great car to drive because of how fun it is to handle that there are others for whom it just doesn't seem to suit and i i wonder if we look at the classifications over the first uh, four race meetings maybe we can see from how they measure up to their teammate who that might be you know without naming names we can probably guess but it, it is quite obviously not suiting some drivers isn't it yeah, th that is true. Um, and I think that was also particularly the case with the Gen 1 car because it was so different to anything else. And then because Gen 2 was an evolution of Gen 1, even if Gen 2 had its flaws, everyone was very happy with it because it was 
blatantly an improvement on Gen 1 because the Gen 3 car is in like slightly different direction to, to those two. It's um, I think the negativity has come to the fore more than the positives of the car. Um, and, and like, yeah, between teammate battles, some drivers, even, I think it's not necessarily of they don't um, suit the car, but because of so how limited the track time is in Formula E, if you're not finding that sweet spot on day one, like Jake Hughes has proved um, since he's joined the championship, you're then kind of be, could be stuck in a rut almost all season. Um, obviously, we've had a, a run of races in, in January and February, but then there are big gaps in the calendar and you know there's no testing opportunities. So if you're not getting the most out of it in practice, you could be stuck the whole season with an ill-handling car that you don't like. You've got to keep a smiley face on TV saying how, how enjoyable it is. Um, and that's a shame, but... Um, I think it's almost because this is a spec series, that's a problem for everyone for those who can't adapt to it. But then you've got other series where, you know, watching Formula One and uh, the cameras will be focusing on the battle at the front, but someone might be driving the ninth best car and hating every day of their life in it, even though they're in F1. So I think that's maybe like a comparable argument to how enjoyable it is to race and, and what does that mean for, you know, enjoying the championship as, as a driver. Um, I do. I've I've no idea how old you are, and uh, we sh we should never ask someone their age. I I, I know that, but um, I'm I'm just wondering. Um, w w when did you start watching Formula One? Um, seriously, what 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 year roughly was your first year of Formula One? It was 2009, I think. I may have watched 2008 finale, but I very much remember waking up incredibly early to watch 2009 Australian Grand Prix and. I've I followed Formula One until it was off free-to-air TV, essentially, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, as it is in the UK. Um, and Formula E, the, I've only ever missed the 2014 Beijing E-Prix, and I've watched all of the other races live. So uh, very committed to, to watching this series. Oh, right. Well, um, I'm, I'm willing to hazard a guess that I'm significantly older than you, and I, I don't wear that like a badge of honour, I believe me. But uh, I remember uh, when Formula One brought in Groove Tyres, which was uh, 1998, if I, if I remember, um, a lot of drivers uh, were up in arms about that because it was a change in philosophy. Um, it, it was obviously a very flawed measure, which was uh, designed to bring in excitement and uh, uh, Max Mosley hoped uh, safety um, on, on some kind of flawed grounds. But uh, they then bought in four groove tyres anyway for uh, uh, 1999 and that um, I remember Damon Hill moaning about it virtually every race that season. So is this just a case of a philosophical change in when there's a dramatic change of rule set and it's maybe brought a bit of a bowdlerized car that's going to get sorted over time as it was in F1 eventually? Could be, yeah. Um, like when they introduced wings to Formula 1, some drivers said it was like the worst idea ever and it was really dangerous and we did have some occasions of wings flying off cars but yeah. um any big change in technical regs is with like those kinds of things is going to be a big change for drivers more than anyone else because the engineers would be working on the concept or uh the realization of these ideas for like a year before the car's actually on track so they're used to all those negatives and stuff but the drivers are only really going to experience it once they're testing it um and again the case of formula e because it's a spec series Although you've then technically got the whole technical team working together towards that single goal, you've then only got one car on the whole grid. So you're kind of lumbered with, if they do make improvements in one area, that might hurt others and others might find it less enjoyable. Whereas in non-spec series, you know, you can change teams and have a totally different handling car by doing so. Um, Formula E drivers, I haven't really heard 
I mean, I've heard about drivers moving teams and saying like, oh, the flo- um, the atmosphere at this team is so much better or um, the way we do like tire warm-up procedures, I find far more useful. But as for the actual, you know, technical bits of the car, I don't really hear drivers changing teams and going like, oh, the powertrain was what made me do it. Or uh, I really liked the exact same spec car with this team compared to another team. Um, so yeah, it's a change of philosophy, but also it's the danger of being a spec series, essentially. Yeah. Um, what did interest me prior to Cape Town, and uh, we, we will go on to talk about the actual race in, in a moment, but this is linked to it, um, was uh, how how much it seems to matter whether you were the incumbent in the team previously um, or, or whether you were new to a team. So, for example, um, the Porsche driver who seemed to struggle more than the other was Antonio Felix da Costa, who was new to the team. Uh, Jean-Eric Verne was, um, obviously has supremacy over Stoffel van Dorn within DS Penske, even though that's a brand, a brand new organisation. Uh, he's carried over a lot of the engineers that he's comfortable with, etc. Um, Nick Cassidy seems to have just about a narrow upper hand over Sebastian Buemi at Envision. Um, and uh, obviously, uh, Tictum has uh, fairly routed uh, Sete Camera at Neo 333, both of them very handy drivers in their own right. Uh, but Tictum's been there for a year longer, so kind of understands the engineering philosophy of the team. Um, you could argue uh, Jake Dennis has generally been faster than Andre Lotterer for, you know, perhaps the reason that Jake Dennis is just... Um, potentially a much better driver in this day and age uh, and Lotterer perhaps is past his peak in FE but you know and also Lotterer is new to the team and this all interests me because I honestly thought if we were coming in with a new generation of car that this wouldn't matter it would just be start from zero for everyone but it's not the case really is it yeah um I know as much as experience does count, obviously Jake Hughes has come in and done very well in, in his first season. But of course, he was reserved with Mercedes and now the Mercedes team essentially evolved into McLaren. Um, the technical figures of most of these teams has remained the same as well, which I think is a key factor. Um, if you're used to working with you know, senior figures as well, that can change. A bit like if you go into a new job, but you had the same boss as maybe at your previous job, that might make working at this new workplace far easier. Mm. Um, example again with Hughes obviously Mercedes isn't in series anymore but Ian James is uh, at the top of McLaren for their Formula E team so he's used to working under him he understands the environment uh, maybe the expectations on him as well um, Jake Jake Dennis of course really knows what Andretti expects of him and uh, you know because he's obviously been improving the expectations raised but he understands what Roger Griffiths is going to want from him whereas Andre Lotterer he's been used to working for like a, a manufacturer team for a while in Porsche and going to Andretti I think is a, a totally different kind of environment on on that front um, another thing I would possibly add is a lot of these drivers do of course do like other campaigns other programs um, and that might have an influence as well on how they're performing in Formula E based on who they're also working with um, in sports cars or, or touring cars or, or whatever they're doing on the side. Yeah, that's that's true. And uh, if, if we look at the race itself, so um, starting from a surprise pole, but with um, the fastest uh, average speed lap ever recorded in Formula E so far was uh, Nissan's Sasha Fenestras. It's his first pole in this particular formula, but uh, I, I'm sure you will argue, as uh, Krzysztof Wojniak argued uh, a, a few weeks ago, that 
this this was coming and that this is the Sasha Venestras that people who've watched him previously um, have been well aware of for a long time. Yeah, yeah, Venestras is mega. He's um, in his two and a bit seasons of Super Formula, he was absolutely sublime. Uh, and all with Condo Racing as well, which wasn't the top, top team. It, it was a victory contender, but he proved that that team could fight for titles again after Nick Cassidy left the championship. Um, as for his adaptation to Formula E, that was also, I feel, like a long time coming. Obviously, he made his debut at the end of last season, but he'd done bits, um, obviously, I think, with Jaguar uh, beforehand. So mm. he's always had an eye on Formula E and, and needing to adapt to it. But... The Nissan car, the Nissan powertrains have looked more impressive in the McLaren cars up until Cape Town. And, and I don't really know why that, that switched around last weekend, why suddenly the Nissans were faster. So as much as I was expecting Fenestras to shine, if someone had said that a Nissan uh, powertrain car would be on pole, I would have tipped Jake Hughes personally. So uh, I was kind of surprised to see Fenestras on pole. Yeah, my my suspicion was that uh, it it was uh, purely down to if if you if you give a brand new um, you know barely tested chassis. I I know they all went to Valencia and they've done plenty of laps around Califat, but uh, um, it, it's it's certainly um, a bit green compared compared to uh, what you would like to have at the start of a season. If you give that to two different teams and. One of them is essentially a carryover of all the staff from the world champion team the previous season and the season before. And one of them um, is a team that is operationally quite new and uh, run, running with different management and uh, has essentially been, been been taken over and rejigged quite a lot. Um, I, I viewed that as the reason why McLaren hit the ground running, uh, of course, former Mercedes team, uh, compared to Nissan. But uh, I, I don't know how much you'd agree with that. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's a, a solid point. And Dams, uh, when they were in charge of Nissan, it was kind of on a downward uh, trajectory after the, the death of their founder. And then going on from that, when Nissan took over, that was slightly messy as well for, for the full operation of the team. So there's been a lot of change there that perhaps they still have to focus on solving those things and making it, the team itself as efficient as possible before it even gets to the, how do we make the car as fast as possible? Um, and with the development of the, the powertrain, I'm not sure how much is done from a single facility. Um, like I know that sometimes the places developing the powertrains are actually hundreds of miles away from the race team. Um, headquarters so so that's something i'm not quite sure what's the arrangement there with nissan and how much contact there is between the powertrain side and, and the guys running the team so so that could be something as well yeah um so fenestras did incredibly well in qualifying but of course um it, it it was um always likely that he would fall back in the race just just because of the uh the nissan works teams uh se- seeming inability to get the same uh level of regen benefits that that mclaren can during the race or seemingly unable to uh, sort of coax the uh, coax a, a, a powertrain which has a relatively uh poor poor regen compared to the very top powertrains uh in, in into those top positions um I guess having an inexperienced driver who is obviously capable of 
pulling out a um, a single lap uh, at will seemingly but uh, maybe struggles at the moment with the sheer amount of technical input needed during a race uh, maybe that was the reason as well why Fenestras look has looked less impressive generally uh, in race trim of course it, it is worth saying he is still in, doing incredibly well and generally has the measure of Norman Natto but uh, yeah would you, would you agree with all that uh, do you think that uh, as Fenestras grows used to the level of complexity of you, you know what's needed from a driver in the race that he will be able to extract more regen from that car and more potential from that car um is it something we can look forward to you know further improvement of as the season goes on um i think it could do one thing we've really seen is during the cold temperatures the mclaren car did look obviously very strong qualifying but still looks strong in the race as well but now that thermal um not degradation but thermal management of the powertrain mm. has come into play in the last two races we have seen a bit of a different picture compared to those first two events and i can only presume that sao paulo is going to be even warmer berlin in the summer is um quite warm as well so i think that might become more of a factor and, and even if the driver gets used to it it's um you know can the powertrain actually survive in 28 air temp and even higher track temp for a whole race distance um which is something that you know many teams have struggled with in previous seasons um, and I think that's, again, where the really experienced drivers are going to come to the fore because they, they are used to those kinds of races where it's not just energy management, but suddenly you have to make sure everything's not overheating for the final third of the race. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, starting in second and then uh, taking the lead um, sh- shortly after that was Max Gunter in the Maserati. And both he and his teammate Eduardo Mortara have really struggled this season um uh, and in, in fact Gunter um again crashed out of, of of this race um as as Tictum said uh, I believe in Diria those Maseratis do like a crash don't they but uh, it, it's really hurting the team at the moment um Mortara as, as we know is is not um always the most consistent driver he he does tend to go for the low percentage move and quite often overcooks it he he remains a favorite of mine but uh, i i have to accept that um G- gunter as well is is known for his instance um, but it kind of looked like he got that out of his system at nissan in his final season i i was surprised to see him uh surrender the top of the order quite so meekly yeah, um, I'm surprised by how kind of underperforming he's been since dominating testing on single lap pace. And, and the fact that he hasn't scored a single point yet is pretty darming, given the only other drivers who haven't are the, the Apt Cooper team uh, trio who have you know really been struggling, had a really disrupted campaign. Uh, the fact that Gunter has already had to withdraw from a race is not helpful for him either. So I'd perhaps say that mentally he's been a bit unsettled in, in how things have only gone from bad to worse and then then gone from worse to worse to worse um and once you're in that kind of rut it's almost the opposite multiplier effect it's like a spiral of decline it's really hard to then pick yourself back up and go mistake free and and just a single mistake might then knock you back mentally quite a lot even if it's a tiny tiny mistake but then it has big consequences such as a crash yeah, uh, Gunter does seem a bit mentally fragile, and uh, that's probably something some people would contest. But 
Um, I, 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 I just wonder how much of that is down to the circumstances of how his how his career in FE has gone because. You know, first season at Dragon, uh, it's it seemed like they essentially wanted to uh, fire him every other race, even though he was their top performer. Um, then mo- moving on to uh, BMW Andretti, you, um, you, you had the issue of him doing incredibly well in terms of, uh, I think, two race wins in his first season, but also is essentially finishing on the podium or crashing that that was that was the that was the pattern in that um, first season then second season uh, he gets a new teammate uh, this bloke from uh, DTM who turns out to be quite handy uh, and you know Jake Dennis surpasses the expectations of most people I think with it, with his first season being a title contender and that really put Gunter in the shade and he, he ended up as Essentially, a number two at Nissan, um, which was very much Sebastian Buemi's team at that stage. Um, how much of that is down to him not taking control of his career, and how much of that is down to just poor luck? I, I think it might be driver-led because if you're a driver who's been at Andretti and you have you know scored three wins in two seasons, you should be on a a pretty good sitting within the paddock. You should have a lot of respect. You should be able to then choose a move that's, that's then going to be good for you. The fact that he then went to Nissan, struggled, you know, he's only scored twice in the last 21 races, I think. That's just going to be uh, demoralizing more than anything. And if you're then not enjoying yourself, you're not going to perform at your best. The fact that he then moved from Nissan could be seen as a good sign. The fact that if he knew that being at Nissan was not good for him, then changing teams would as, was a constructive thing to do. However, Nissan probably also had a say in that if they wanted to sign the drivers they have now. Um, but another thing I would add is Maserati in their previous form were an incredibly potent team. It was another move that looks to have been a sensible move, but just hasn't played out. So in these circumstances, I'd say it's probably something related to the driver um, that's leading to this decline. Well, I would agree, and um, Eduardo Mortara um, has had another terrible, has had a terrible season as well. And uh, g- given how he was in contention until London for the title last season, this this was not what anyone hoped for. I mean, Maserati are using the same powertrain as DS Penske; they're, they're using a Stellantis powertrain, and. Um, Jean-Éric Verne has obviously had to uh, pull all the tricks out of the box to get uh, first and second in the last two races. But uh, even so, you know, the, the, the Monaco team that used to be known as Venturi has shown it can take a customer powertrain and uh, ring it and sometimes do better than the works team. It, it's just not happening for them this season. And it, it, it just gives the air of an organisation which is thoroughly unsettled. Um, any thoughts as to what might be unsettling them? Without speaking to the senior management, I honestly can say um, beyond the drivers just being demotivated by a, a lack of results and a lack of performance, um, particularly given the previous heights both of them have achieved in this championship. Um, but then... Thinking back to when, like, De Costa was at Andretti, Andretti was a team that was really, like, mired at the very bottom of the field at times, but they made their way up. So I think there is a, a route back to the front for Maserati, and the fact that they showed pace and testing is always encouraging, but it might depend a little bit on how the Gen 3 car is developed by Formula E, what changes a series are going to introduce, either for safety or for, or for performance or for aesthetics, and how that then actually impacts how the teams perform as well 
Yeah. Um, t- uh, four, four cars didn't start the race. Uh, the uh, the Mahindras and the Mahindra powertrained uh, Abt Cooper cars, which you mentioned a minute ago, um, they were pulled out for safety reasons due to their suspension uh, not being guaranteed as safe over the Cape Town circuit. Uh, this came as a major shock to, I think, everyone watching and, um, and, and indeed everyone covering the race. But... Um, how much of a blow is it for Formula E that uh, that, that teams are still having to pull out because of safety concerns? It it, it seems to me that uh, this is something that is quite embarrassing for everyone, actually. Yeah, I, I think internally within the world of Formula E, this is huge. This is unacceptable. It's a repeat almost of what's happened before, um, and it should be avoidable beyond anything else. But for like a a general motorsport audience who pay, maybe not necessarily mock Formula E already, but already see Formula E as deficient to other series, it's going to be another kind of tool in their arsenal against championship because this did make headlines beyond, um, I know a few websites only do race reports Formula E, but they covered off this story that cars are withdrawn because it's, it's a big story, I guess. Um, so yeah, it's a big negative for the championship, but I think we do forget that we do have in other championships lots of cars that even if they don't get withdrawn in races they go ahead and race and then you have like not necessarily horrific crashes but um horrific failures that demonstrate how dangerous the cars are and they then have to retrospectively introduce rule changes or um you know cars that then have to be withdrawn from a separate event um like sometimes you have that in sports car racing they 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 actually recall cars to then make changes so the fact that they withdrew the cars before the race is actually a very sensible thing and we should be pleased that that did happen because if it wasn't safe to race then that's a, a very concerning thing so in some aspects a big negative for the championship but also another moment where they've made the the best decision for everyone concerned and looking back you'd rather have this situation than them going on track and then the worst happening yeah now um uh, pascal verline the championship leader crashed out early on jake dennis was not able to take advantage of that uh, from second in the championship um the person who didn't who did take advantage of that sorry was uh, antonio felix da costa um and again another strong result behind him for jean eric verne who is really getting the most that he can out of that uh, ds package but by the way, what an incredible overtaking manoeuvre on, I think, the penultimate lap from Da Costa on Verne. It was down a part of the track where no one really had any right to overtake. And it, it was it was like a proper Star Wars Canyon manoeuvre. It was using the bare minimum possible space to, to get through. And it, it was it was right at the start of the braking zone. Um thrilling stuff but um what, what was what was your instant reaction to that overtaking maneuver when you were watching it because i was out of my seat yeah i i yelled and screamed at the tv like in disbelief especially because he'd done a similar move earlier on and then just to pull that off in the way he did for a race win was absolutely insane um definitely i think like my my temperature was up watching that because i was just getting so excited during those final few laps i was so engrossed in it um and both drivers should be applauded for how that played out as well because maybe at other tracks and you try that kind of move it's going to end in disaster and the fact that they they managed to get through it fine was just unbelievable to watch 
And it really made me think watching the driver interviews after the race that this is not a normal job because normally when you see a race winner, um, yes, yes, they're happy, but there is a feeling almost of, you know, to quote Mario Balotelli, the footballer, uh, does a postman celebrate delivering a letter? But after this one, um, there was fruity industrial language, as as we used to say, and uh, uh, there were a couple of drivers sweating heavily and um, and and laughing about what had just happened uh, de costa and verne obviously um were teammates and uh, mostly friends during that ds to cheetah time and obviously knew each other very well but it seemed like neither of them expected that it, it was almost like de costa rather than planning the dive bomb in a very calculated way just did it entirely spontaneously he didn't seem to understand what he'd just done and it, it was one of those really rare moments i thought in sport where where two sports people seemed to be completely dumbstruck on what they'd just done or what they'd just witnessed uh, and taken part in um how how much how much of how much of that is uh, is really important that it got across on the screen because I think people need to know that racing drivers you know do give a damn and they're not bored and so on don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, good news stories and and positive happy drivers is always a win for a championship, uh, particularly when it's the biggest names fighting over the biggest um, titles, etc. The the move itself. I'm trying to remember watching it on TV. I think we obviously got the out of um, or the the trackside shot of them going, and then later we got the onboards as well. Um, and it was one of those moves where you didn't need the onboard, the T cam, or even like the equipment um, overhead shot to fully, you know, realize how amazing that was. You could just see it from the side uh, that there wasn't enough room really for two cars, and somehow they made it happen. Um, thinking back to Mortara's incredible move at Diria two years mm. ago. That was a move where really it was tense, but you weren't going to get the thrill of it unless you saw multiple camera angles of it. Uh, whereas this one was just, you could see it in any capacity and, and just be wowed by it. I remember when Vern got out of the car, he was immediately saying like, oh, I didn't see you in my mirrors. I didn't see you in my mirrors. Like, how did you pull that off? Um, and, you know, both of them were really hyped up on adrenaline at that point. So it's one of those moments as well, like you said, they're both dumbstruck, but also even though he's lost the race, he's also in awe of what's just happened and it, it's um oh what's the word not like osmosis but if they're thrilled and bouncing off the ceiling that's going to spread to everyone else around them everyone there i imagine was super pumped up after that finish because that that kind of attitude and uh, happiness is contagious from drivers excellent race and i i think that uh, penultimate lap really uh, summed things up for for the viewers but I want to look ahead now because uh, Formula E has a driver salary problem, or at least that's what that's what the teams um, are believed to think. Um, driver salaries have gone up uh, consistently, and uh, they've they've risen, you know, effectively well above the price of inflation um, in in Formula E, which means that uh, drivers such as uh, Jean Eric Verne, Stoffel Van Dorn are paid much much more compared to the uh, lowest paid drivers than would have been the case in the gen 1 era for example and certainly in the early gen 2 era so um fe is going to bring in a driver salary cap but this according to again sam smith might lead to a driver brain drain or exodus so we could be left with quite a few formula e seats to fill in the coming seasons it's a very technically complex formula you you need to do effectively sports car level inputs uh, per lap to make sure 
sure that you're using the right levels of energy, etc. And you, you've got constant communication on quite technically complex things with your pitch. And I guess we'd argue that's one of the things that Dan Tictum has turned out to be good at. But who do you think might be the future Tictums, the future people to really get the hang of Formula E and uh, and 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 bec become established names in the sport? Because you know you write Formula Scout and you have done for some time now, and part of Formula Scout's uh, mo is to follow the junior series. Formula Two is as much of an FE feeder series as um, as an F1 feeder series these days. So, do you have maybe some names that would be suited to FE and perhaps some at the upper echelons of those categories that aren't? Yeah, I, I think one aspect, in particular with Formula E's current tyre supply with with Hankook and the very kind of hard compound, is that's a huge contrast from Formula One's tyres and. On top of that, Formula 2 and Formula 3's tyres, because they all use Prellis, they're all looking for the same characteristics, and it's a very different characteristic to, to Formula E. So once drivers reach the upper levels of junior single-seaters, they then have to adapt themselves to be like an F1-ready driver. And that actually makes them arguably less prepared to go into Formula E and sports cars and basically anything else. When we look at drivers go from IndyCar, for example, into sports cars, they adapt almost seamlessly, it seems. And I think that's because the the way you have to hustle an IndyCar, it, it requires a lot more variability and approach from oval to road course to, to street course from a driver. In F1, you don't have that as much. And then, although F2 does race on a few street circuits, you're still you know basically using a set of heavily developed Pirelli tire compounds that are trying to maximize grip at those tracks rather than maximize driver challenge and, and to an extent entertainment. Uh, so what I see is, Yes, there's a lot of drivers towards the top of F2 who, you know, definitely have the talent to go to, to Formula E, but they've worked so hard on making themselves quick on Pirelli's and suitable for F1 that they wouldn't necessarily go to Formula E and adapt straight away. Maximilian Gunter, I think he, he didn't even complete a single season in, in F2 with um, Arden. If I remember mm. correctly, he missed the final round and then he went to, to Formula E after that. And that somewhat helped him. He was with a team that wasn't particularly strong in, in F2. Um, they weren't getting the most out of the tyres at all. But therefore, because he wasn't heavily in that to that like Pirelli mindset, when he turns up in Formula E and he, you know, he was a bit thrown around the shop during his first season there, he still was very quick to adapt. Um, and back in the day when we had the FIA European F3 Championship, we did have several drivers either coming up, not quite directly from that, but with a bit of experience in something else, then into Formula E, or drivers who'd done that series earlier in their career and were now headed to Formula E. Um, those are the ones who have looked particularly impressive, I think. Uh, thinking of like Val Hine, Jake Dennis, Nick Cassidy, um, uh, Jake Hughes even, actually at the time, he did that as well. So, so that kind of variety of experience is really required from these junior drivers to then adapt seamlessly to, to Formula E, which makes it hard to pick out names because... Arguably, if you're a name just below the Formula 3 level, you're not going to be looking at going to Formula E directly from there. You're going to be looking at still doing maybe one or two rungs of the junior ladder. Whereas in America, you've also got another very different tyre situation with Firestone now coming in as the Indy next tyres player to make mm. it more similar to IndyCar. Because IndyCar's got a, a fair few similarities to, to Formula E, I think that's possibly going to be where you have the more drivers who are if they go to Formula E, they're going to adapt seamlessly. Whereas drivers in F2, they might be more talented, but they might take a little longer to, to understand the demands of the championship because 
they've had to adapt themselves to the demands of Formula Two. So I'm thinking like Louis Foster, um, who's in Formula uh, Indy Next at the moment. Linus Lundqvist, who won the championship last year, but hasn't got a race seat for this year. Uh, Rasmus Lind is coming in, and this is a really interesting driver. He's super mm. talented. Um, he was supposed to do Indy Lights when the pandemic led to the season being cancelled. He spent ages trying to get back onto the grid. He'll finally be racing this year, but he definitely doesn't have the budget to go to, to IndyCar. Um, but Formula E's budget is significantly less for, for a team than to run even an IndyCar F2. So if he wanted a Formula E seat, he'd need to be bringing a lot less money than going somewhere else. And also with this um, driver salary cap thing, those teams are then going to be spending less of their money on um, paying their drivers. So if you have a driver who you pay or uh, they were brought to the team on the basis that you're going to pay them in seat one, then for seat two, you can go for a driver who might bring in sponsorship, but there's less of a demand on that sponsorship because you're not spending as much on that other driver if that kind of makes sense so i think rasmus lind would be one of the definite future formula e contenders um on the formula two and formula three grid ollie bearman i feel like is destined to go to f1 mm. he's the kind of driver who is under such demand that if i were a formula e team and obviously we've got this kind of much argued rookie um regulation with the practice sessions and stuff he's the kind of driver i'd want to get in a formula e car to see how he performs um and to then have the understanding of what it's like to drive a formula e car in the back of his mind so if it ever an opportunity arose he'd be a driver could call upon and maybe he could be you know quick on the spot um one other issue though with not quite tied to the salary caps but because of you've got these f1 junior teams and drivers are now tied to to those teams and the interests of those manufacturers. If those manufacturers aren't active in Formula E, then they're not going to be particularly um, pleased, you could say, with sending their junior over to to that championship. Um, Although IndyCar doesn't have manufacturers directly involved, you've still got a huge US car market and a lot of sponsorship in IndyCar is regional. Like Drivers have different sponsors for almost every race. Whereas at Formula E, you've got a lot of manufacturer involvement. You've got all of these powers above the drivers that have to align to make a deal worthwhile for the team. So coming in as a junior driver, you've got less on your plate to provide to the team in terms of sponsorship value. Even if like in monetary value, that's you might be able to bring, let's say, 100,000 euros. But is that 100,000 euros with a brand that that team actually wants to be associated with in reference to the rest of their sponsors and partners so that's the kind of i think struggle that junior drivers might face going into formula e if it continues on a like a manufacturer uh, led series we don't really know what's going to be the series will be like in four years time in which case there might be anyone can go into it but i think with a salary cap if drivers then do leave directly as a result of this teams can't be picky with who they're replacing them with so you then would see Formula 2 drivers, maybe even Formula 3 drivers getting seats. And I'm sure the backers of those young drivers would be going, oh, look, we can race in a world championship for significantly less money than we're spending on racing in F3 or F2. So that's how I see it playing out if this salary cap um, move does come in and it does really deter you know, the established drivers from staying in Formula E. Uh, fascinating input, really. Thank you, Ida. Um, I, I want to finish with a final point, uh, which um, I, I've steered clear of up up till now in the podcast because I didn't want you to think I was a one-issue person. But uh, 
Uh, Dan Tictum, you have interviewed him several times. We've talked about him before. Go and check out the episode if you if you haven't previously, listeners. But um, he, he's having a quite incredible season in the Neo three 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 compared to last season. Um, I was concerned when they bin, when they binned off Oliver Turvey, but actually he's really showing his engineering knowledge to uh, find clever ways to stay well ahead of Sergio Sete Camera, who himself is an excellent driver. Um, what what do you make of the uh, Tickton Renaissance? I, I think it's very intriguing more than anything else. Both both drivers are hustlers of cars. Um, Seti Camera famously lost the Macau Grand Prix by hustling the car a bit too much and then Tixon won it. Um, and we've seen that with Camera's previous teams, how he, he's got into it, just found the limit by pushing the car over it and then dialing back from there and, and seeing how you can not only drive the car um, fast, but then the efficiency comes in after that. Kind of similar with Tixon. He found the qualifying pace first, then uh, the matter of actually, you know, having a driving style that's suitable for races is something you have to find further down the line. And that wasn't helped by Neo's powertrain being particularly awful on um, efficiency in those races. So there's been definite improvement in the Neo package. And because of that, that means if you're a driver trying to improve your like uh, approach to the races, the way you're testing the changes in your own style, you're more likely to see if they're successful or not successful because the package you have underneath you is more reliable in terms of feedback and pace and also efficiency, particularly if you're trying something like it towards the end of a stint or um, obviously in testing, you've only got a few days. But in a race, if you want to to really see how far you can push the package um, towards the end of the race, you've got to be hope you've got your dependent on the car beneath you actually being efficient enough for you to do that even cars which uh have 15 percent usable energy still left um the thermal deck can still be really bad so that it might look like at times that in previous years we've actually seen like neo go through energy quicker than their rivals and also dragon racing in the past but this year it looks more like the neos on the same energy level as everyone else but the thermal deck is what's really hurting them in the races so for Tixum to come sixth from Cape Town was super impressive because it did sound like I think we only heard one radio message during that time but when he once he came out the car and he spoke about it afterwards he said same issue as previous races um you know degrad- uh, efficiency in the race was a problem but a super fast car in qualifying that's something I've been working on as a driver and I've made the improvements it's still down to the team for them to make improvements but as I kind of said before, the only reason he could make those improvements because he now has a package underneath him that gives him more rewarding feedback as a driver of what you're doing is right or wrong. Um, with Turvey, because he was so experienced, he, he wasn't dependent on that. Uh, Seti Camera, yes, he finished fifth in Hyderabad, but it, it does look like he's having to, to relearn this package with, with the team. Right, um, that's that's absolutely fascinating. Um, uh, the the links, all of our links are on linktree.com forward slash motion underscore e. You can find the website and everything else to get in touch there. Um, if you like this podcast, then uh, give us a good rating. And if you really liked it, you can send me a donation on coffee if you want. Uh, the link is up there on Linktree. Um, Ida Wood writes for formulascout.com and there is, there is some excellent content up there about the upcoming junior seasons right now so do take a look there Ida um, always a pleasure to have you on this podcast thank you so much for uh, taking the time thank you and I, I can't wait until the next race